This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa podcast. President Biden's State of the Union address was in many ways defined not by his address, but by a photo that has gone viral this morning that captures the awful Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene heckling the president as he eulogized his deceased son. If a photo is worth a thousand words, then this one is worth ten fucking thousand, as it sums up everything about our current political moment. That was the moment in the speech where the president was talking about his unity agenda and talking about priorities that we should all be able to agree on. Look, one American dies every five minutes of an opioid overdose. Uh, there's no question we should do more to help our nation's veterans, people who have been hurt by uh, the, the impacts of burn pits. Of course, we need to do more to work together to cure cancer. And they were heckling around that time and that moment. I think that says a lot more about them than it does about how important these priorities are and, the, and how, uh, how much the vast majority of people who were sitting there watching in that chamber last night could work together to solve exactly those problems and others too. The venom and contempt in their faces, the lack of decorum, self-righteousness and stupidity speak to where we are as a nation in 2022. And all of it while Lindsey Graham looks on helplessly like a fucking geriatric who just pissed his pants in public. But let's not kid ourselves folks, these two nasty gremlins are the noxious offspring of Donald Trump. If Ronald Reagan gave birth to a generation of conservatives, then these are Trump's demented spawn. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. <laughs> Without him, they could not and would not exist politically. I was ready to dismiss them as insane and irrelevant, but I am reminded that they have growing constituencies, that they raise tons of money and represent a corner of the electorate that feels the exact same way. Maybe Putin should launch an all-out nuclear attack, because if this is the future of American politics, then we're fucking doomed as a nation anyway. Disgusting. It brought the, the January 6th insurrectionists right into the, the Capitol. It was that same kind of behavior, that same instigation that Marjorie Taylor Greene um, used to uh, spread the big lie to cause the, the mob to break in, to put people's lives at, at, at risk. Bobert attempted to make Tuesday night's State of the Union address all about herself, only to get booed by her colleagues as President Joe Biden solemnly talked about his son dying of cancer and military veterans suffering from burn pit exposure. Towards the end of his speech, the president turned his attention to an issue that has drawn bipartisan support and attention. The increased care for soldiers who have suffered the effects of toxic exposure. As he announced his plans to provide health care and disability compensation for military members who've become ill due to breathing in toxic smoke from burn pits, Biden began explaining how this was a personal issue for him. Headaches, numbness, dizziness, a cancer that would put them in a flag-draped coffin. I know. One of those, one of those soldiers was my son, Major Bo Biden. I don't know for sure if the burn pit that he lived near, that his hooch was near in Iraq and earlier than that, in Kosovo, is the cause of his brain cancer, the disease of so many other troops. But I am committed to find 
out everything we can. In a moment that went miles beyond GOP, Representative Joe Wilson's notorious 2009 You Lie outburst, Boebert shouted that Biden was the one who had put Americans into those flag-draped coffins. They heckled him just as he was talking about his deceased son, Bo. Here they are, um, looking like they're five hard seltzers deep at a Thunder Down Under show in Vegas. But it was embarrassing. Even some of their fellow Republicans were embarrassed. And as irritating as their behavior was, we do have freedom of speech in this country, which uh, means uh, I can remind you that Lauren Boebert is married to a guy who went to jail for showing his penis to a teenager in a bowling alley. And Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, spent last weekend speaking at a conference organized by a pro-Putin white nationalist. And just in case you missed her appalling theatrics, Boebert bragged about it on Twitter, saying, when Biden said flag-draped coffins, I couldn't stay silent. I told him directly he did it. He put 13 in there. Let me just say this. I agree with what Senator Lindsey Graham said, shut up. That's what he said to them. I think they should just shut up. Elsewhere in the speech, Boebert and Green, who was seen mouthing that Biden is a fucking idiot as the president spoke, attempted to get a build the wall chant going after the president praised border security, only to find, hey, there's no takers, asshole. This is what happens when rampant narcissism is considered a personal attribute. These two individuals believe that wherever they are, it's the center of their universe, and whatever they do, think or believe, needs to be recorded for posterity. They pulled a dumb stunt where they turned their backs on Biden's cabinet as they entered the chamber. Although, I genuinely can't tell if they're turning their backs or if they are just wasted and don't know which way to look. I mean, they have the vibe and posture of two college sophomores at a party looking for a friend who left hours ago. Jessica! Jessica! <laughs> was that supposed to be a powerful statement? You don't look like you're turning your backs. So you look like you're waiting for your Uber after getting kicked out of an Applebee's on St. Patrick's Day. Look like two overbearing Little League moms berating their kids from the stands. Come on, Tyler, you gotta catch that! <laughs> this is T-ball, Tyler! Now that picture might make you angry, but if I've learned anything, any one thing from watching Real Housewives, it's that two white ladies this erratic will eventually turn on one another. <laughs> oh, sure, they agree now, but you wait. You just wait. Did you take my Stop the Steal mask? I borrowed it. Well, stop the borrow! For Bobert, the controversy is the thing. She knows that there is no line that she can cross with Biden that would lead the Trumpist base against her. The ruder and more partisan she is, the better it is for her political theatrics in support of, um, showing how much she hates Biden are not only tolerated by some corners of the Republican Party, but they're celebrated. Thank you, Madam Speaker. Democrat policies are so pathetic and have done so poorly that the left has nothing else to do but troll the internet looking for ways to get offended and then try to target members and strip them of their committees. This is a dumb waste of the House's time. But since the speaker has designated the floor to discuss members' inappropriate actions, shall we? The Jihad Squad member from Minnesota has paid her husband, and not her brother husband, the other one, over a million dollars in campaign funds. This member is allowed on the Foreign Affairs Committee while praising 
terrorists. A Democrat chairwoman incited further violence in the streets outside of a courthouse. And then the cherry on top, my colleague and three-month presidential candidate from California, who is on the Intelligence Committee, slept with Fang Fang, a Chinese spy. Let me say that again. A member of Congress who receives classified briefings was sleeping with the Florida. enemy. This is unacceptable, and this would never Gentlemen, be... Time's expired, gentlemen. The Colorado Republican who wore a black shawl with the words, drill, baby, drill, on the back wrote at least 50 tweets lambasting Biden throughout his speech. The attire referenced her support of increased drilling for petroleum and gas, a stand she has tweeted about in the past, and a pet slogan of Sarah Palin, the patron saint of political ignorance herself. Putin is watching the tyranny that is taking place in America, and that's why he's now at war with, with Ukraine. Are you crazy? Jesus. I just plain stupid. Green wasn't part of the Republican response to President Joe Biden's State of the Union address, but she tried to be. In her own State of the Union response video, she ranted and raved against everything President Joe Biden stands for in a fucking weird and hate-filled response that reminded some of a terrorist video. The President of the United States is totally compromised because every world leader has contents of Hunter Biden's laptop and much more to blackmail him. So it's no wonder America is weak. We do not have a president that can defend our country. We have a president that puts America last because he is literally serving China, Russia, and the world. He is a globalist. He's for the global economy. He is for the World Economic Forum, for the interest of China, and for the interest of Russia, and for anyone anywhere that has blackmail evidence on his sexually deviant, drug-addled, deadbeat dad, pathetic, sorry, embarrassing excuse of a son. Joe Biden has already broken his oath of office because all he cares about is protecting Hunter Biden and he will not protect any of us. This is why I have introduced four articles of impeachment on Joe Biden. Republicans have been criticized as the party of no for the past two Democratic presidents, columnist Nicholas Goldberg wrote in the Los Angeles Times. Green brought that to a whole new level Tuesday night after the big speech. While many Republicans gave Biden standing ovations over bipartisan initiatives and cheers for America, Green struggled to find anything she liked. Instead, she sought to rant against Democrats in a 30-minute, conspiracy-laden word salad for the Right Side Broadcasting Network. Under President Trump, this would have never happened. For four years, our country had a real leader that led America and the entire world to peace through strength. But now we have a mentally incompetent feckless, dementia-ridden piece of crap. Green was criticized this week after she spoke at a white supremacist conference where Vladimir Putin and Adolf Hitler were praised from the podium. Senator Mitch McConnell took the rare opportunity to rebuke her and minority leader Kevin McCarthy promised to give her another talking to. But according to Representative Adam Kinzinger, it's Republicans like Green who are actually running the caucus now. My God, that's fucking frightening. And to think these folks might retake the majority? 
If they're this bad now, what happens when they're actually put in charge? And now they're going on about Russia and Vladimir Putin is Hitler. And they say that's not a good thing. And can we give a round of applause for Russia? Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. We are honored, we are humbled and excited to welcome to the stage right now for our first speech, and we'd love to get to know her much better. I think this is going to be the beginning of something great. The representative from Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene. In this era of the social media celebrity, there's a sense that everyone is a star with their own audience to entertain. Now, it's one thing for Kim and Kanye to broadcast their every thought and utterance, but it's quite another when it infects our government. But in their minds, that is the point, to annoy, to disrupt, and to troll, to try to be like Kim and Kanye. After all, to Green and Boebert, Biden isn't really the president. They exist in an alternate universe of conspiracy. All of it would be laughable if it weren't so fucking real. And now for the main event. My next guest on Maya Culpa is none other than Bakari Sellers. The last time we spoke, it was on the eve of the 2020 election. There was a sense of hope, but also anxiety for what was to come. Biden seemed strong enough to defeat Trump, but we did not know what was to come. And never in a million years could we have imagined where we are now. All through that time, Sellers has remained committed to pushing a progressive agenda and keeping the Democrats and President Biden on task. Lest anyone forget, it was Sellers' mentor James Clyburn and African-American voters who recused his floundering primary campaign and put him over the top in Super Tuesday. Now that the bill has come due, and many on the left feel that Biden has not done enough to live up to his promises, save for the nomination of Ketanji Brown Jackson to become the first African-American woman to be nominated to the Supreme Court, we'll learn later how Sellers grades the rest of Biden's first year on the eve of the State of the Union. The best-selling author of My Vanishing Country, his memoir about growing up in the rural South, Sellers joins me today on Mea Culpa as the country moves through a moment of interlocking crisis. From the Russian invasion of Ukraine to the ongoing January 6th investigation to the pandemic to inflation to voter rights and to an insurgent far-right threatening to undo many of the gains made this year, there isn't much that doesn't feel on the verge of falling apart. Raised in a family steeped in the civil rights movement, Sellers today works as a trial attorney and CNN analyst. He also hosts his own hit podcast for The Ringer and recently released his first children's book, Who Are Your People? But all of this feels like a temporary way station for a much larger destiny. Sellers was the youngest elected African-American official in the country when he held office. He worked for Obama. I have no doubt he will serve once again. My hope is that that day comes very soon because the Democratic bench is starting to look mighty thin. So let's go now to that conversation. So Bakari, you recently retweeted an excerpt from the New York Times that discussed the substance of Trump's, and I'm gonna quote here, 
perfect phone call with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, where the former president, this fucking idiot, attempted to pressure Zelensky into investigating his political rivals in exchange for the much-needed military aid and money. Now, we all know where this led, but if you would, discuss with me this exchange and how it matters now in light of the Russian invasion and what it reveals to you about Donald Trump. Well, I think we have to look at it critically. I mean, not only was it a stupid phone call, uh, Michael, which I think everyone would agree with, and not only was it just kind of brute in the way that he went about um, an impeachable offense, literally an impeachable offense. But we are now able to have a clear eyed view on the relationship uh, that Donald Trump had with Vladimir Putin and how his policy was was just utterly disruptive. The, the fact is, President Zelensky and Ukraine uh, needed this aid. They needed these uh, defense mechanisms to prevent the, what we're seeing today. And Donald Trump knew that. And Donald Trump knew how valuable it was. And he still tried to withhold that for the purposes of his own personal gratification and to benefit Vladimir Putin. So I think that in light of what we're seeing, we see how bad, because some people were just like, it was a bad phone call, but what? But now with the full context, you see it's more than a but what. Yeah, more than about what is right. Now, here are just like some of the claims, for example, that the former president made over, you know, that phone call. And so and and I thought they were interesting. The president wrongly claimed that acting director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire, testified that Trump's phone call with Zelensky was very normal. Now, that's, of course, Trump claiming it. McGuire did not characterize the phone call in his testimony before the House Intelligence Committee in, in that specific light as very normal. But he's not the only one, Bakari, right? You also had, you know, Trump claimed that Senator Rick Scott of Florida described the call as perfect, as a perfect conversation. Now, Scott didn't use those words, but the same like with Mitch McConnell. He made those same, you know, Trump claimed that Mitch McConnell put out a statement that said it was the most innocent phone call that he's ever read. Now, neither... Rick Scott nor McConnell ever agreed to the statements that Trump made, but they also didn't see the call as an impeachable offense. Talk to me about that. I mean, it's profiles and courage, right? I mean, those individuals or lack thereof. I mean, those individuals, uh, I think with, they believe that what is happening today would not occur. Um, and therefore, their cowardice would not be put into um, the light. I mean, the first part of your of your comment is so true. And Donald Trump is a sociopath who lies quite often, and so it's no it's no um, secret the reason that he that he lied about someone's testimony. But let's go further in. I mean, when you look at a country like Ukraine, who shares a twelve hundred mile border uh, with Russia, um, you know that you have Vladimir Putin, who is doing his best to try to re. Uh, invent the, the Soviet Union, and that starts with uh, bringing Ukraine back into the fold and to withhold this military aid. I mean, it, you saw McConnell, et cetera, play politics and not try to undermine the president of the United States, per se. At least that was their reasoning. But the, the behavior of the president of the 45th president of the United States should have been not only enough for impeachment, but in light of what we've seen, enough to be ejected from office. 
Yeah, you know, the funny thing is where he completely is misguided in his thought process, he went after the whistleblower, right, who claimed that they never saw the conversation uh, and so on. But one of the things that he falsely also stated is that he claimed that the White House released a memo of the phone call with Zelensky that, in, in his words, was an exact word-for-word transcript of the conversation. And then, of course, he goes on to say, taken by a very talented stenographer. Now, I could truly hear those words play in my voice because this is the same way he used to speak at the Trump Organization. If you want to praise somebody, he's a very talented stenographer. You don't have to be talented. I mean, look, like yourself, How many depositions have you done in your life? I've done hundreds of depositions. And I wouldn't say that each and every one of the stenographers, I wouldn't call them talented stenographers. I would call them certainly more than competent because what's their job? To take it down word for word. The government's memo then included a caution, a caution note on the transcript stating it's not a verbatim transcript, <laughs> right? I mean, I don't understand what Trump is thinking and how he thinks that whether whether you see what's going on, whether you hear it with your own ears and his words, or it's allegedly a transcript by a talented, a very talented stenographer, it's not what it, it's purported to be. I mean, but his, does it matter? I mean, is the truth? I mean, the question is to you and I, the truth is still reigning supreme. But in Trump world, does it matter? I mean, I I recently saw Frank Luntz have a post up about the polling that shows that only 3% of Trump voters think that uh, Joe Biden is running his country better than Vladimir Putin, right? I mean, there is a different world of voter who ascribes to the lies, who disregards the, the psychopathy. And so my question is, I mean, does it matter? You have to realize that, you know, he got 70 million people to vote for him. And we all know that he fabricates. We all know that he lies. I mean, he lies like people breathe. And the the, the biggest... The big, I've said that before, too. Yep. The biggest issue that we have, though, is that, you know, imagine if... This is the scary scenario, Michael. Imagine if Donald Trump were still president today. Imagine a fractured NATO responding to Putin. Uh, imagine a lack of unity and a global response. Um, Ukraine would fall. Um, and Ukraine wouldn't just be the first. I mean, you have to understand China is watching this to see what happens and uh, see what see what the possibilities are with Taiwan. Uh, look at Estonia. Look at Latvia. These are all countries that, you know, could be up next for Vladimir Putin. And so this is an important moment in American history. And you have to wonder if Donald Trump was president now or president in four years, what, what would be the result? Well, I'm pretty sure I could tell you what the result would be. He would be siding right now with Putin. There would be no aid whatsoever to Ukraine because Ukraine did not do for him what he was demanding. And that is to lie about Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden. It was to open up that investigation as, you know, the... Fuhrer number two wanted, right? And since they did not do that for him, if he was still president, you could rest assured that he would be telling them right now, no, in no short, you know, 
order. He would go right on um, television and he would basically give them, you know, the big fuck you, you know, good luck to you, you know, um, have a nice day. That's really where he would be at. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, one of the one of the greatest tragedies we're seeing right now is is, you, you know, you have these profiles, you have President Zelensky versus a Ted Cruz or the imagery of a of a Donald Trump. You have someone who is leading a country with great courage, understanding that there is a there is a real human cost that's being paid. I mean, individuals are losing their lives right now in this war. I mean, this is not a this is not a fictitious uh, war. This is this is a very real uh, you know, threat of, of a nuclear arsenal being deployed. But Donald Trump doesn't have the capability to see anything outside of himself. And therefore, um, the strength that we're showing and the strength that Joe Biden is showing, regardless of what you think about him during this moment, is a complete 180 degree contrast to what we had the last four years. <laughs> if you saw my Twitter feed, I put out it was a picture of uh, Zelensky in military you know, gear. And then the other one was Ted Cruz. And I wrote, you know, when the, when the tough get going, right, the weak head to Cancun. And <laughs> it got a pretty funny response from my Twitter followers. But it's the truth. You know, Zelensky is really, truly a patriot for his country. This is a guy who was offered as the president um, an invitation to leave. And he goes, I'm not leaving my country, right? I don't blame him. I wouldn't leave either if I was him. But, you know, some people certainly would. Rest assured, if Trump was in that situation, he would take it and say oh, so long to it. you. You know, it reminds me of like that Fred Flintstone one with like, Madam Yes, right? You know, I'm too important to be captured, right? Yeah. And that's, that's what he would say. I'm just too, I'm too important. You know, the one thing I wanted to discuss with you, something that has been on my, my mind, 40% of Russia's economy is based upon oil, all right? And right now they're doing incredibly well because of the price per barrel of oil is now, you know, at a high it hasn't been at, obviously, in many, many years. But the part that bothers me the most is that the United States has more untapped oil than any other country in the entire world. 200, this is the estimated 200 and 64 billion barrels of oil, right? Why are we not really? You want to teach Russia a lesson? Start to tap some of these oil reserves that we have in this country. We could take over the entire energy market in the world. We have more oil than Saudi Arabia. We have more oil than Saudi Arabia and Russia combined. Bring the oil back down to 30 bucks a freaking barrel, $40 a barrel, right? Put Russia out of business economically. Let them financially suffer and then figure out how to deal with somebody like Putin. Oh, I think that there are a couple of things. I, I, you know, I don't necessarily disagree with your overall sentiment, understanding that there is some nuance. For example, we, we get about 800,000 barrels of oil a day from Russia. Um, I think that's about the, the the quantity of consumption. But you look at things like the Keystone Pipeline. For me, I am someone who believes that we should, on a limited basis, tap some of our reserves um, while also fighting climate change. I don't think that you have to choose one or the other. The argument that's made, Michael, though, is this. Like, how do you move towards 
you know, carbon zero, and you still are untapping um, reserves or building pipelines. I think that you can do both. I think you can put things in place to limit your, um, and I think we have to, because if you're in, if you're in Mar-a-Lago, you know, it's going to be underwater in 20, 30 years, right? And by the way, I mean, Russia's economy is crippling right now, even without this. I mean, I, like I said on TV and didn't make um, a lot of my Russian friends happy, but it's basically like a, a frozen tundra with a gas station and a nuclear weapon. I mean, that's what Ro Russia is becoming quickly. Um, and so its economy is crippling fast. But you're right. I mean, we do. I think there is a balance to be had here at home where we can, you know, focus on climate change, but also untap on a small scale some of our numerous resources we have here. That was a whole argument of the Keystone Pipeline. But although, although that wasn't necessary, we wouldn't be purchasing gas here. We'd be purchasing it from Quebec. The, the argument still is the same. Yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, but Picari, you jokingly tweeted that Putin's only hope for, is really for Trump to be reelected as president. But in all seriousness, you know, what do you make of the former president's continued praise of Putin? It's not just him, though. Right. I mean, you have Mike Pompeo, the former secretary of state who called him brilliant and shrewd and all of these other things. And Tucker Carlson. And, and Tucker. then you had some idiot at it wasn't CPAC. It was the other one like America uh, first something. Uh, yeah. America for uh, AF, PAC, whatever it was. Yeah. And then Marjorie Taylor Greene got up and the whole same stupidity. So, you know, what do you make of this? I mean, the Republican Party has a problem. I mean, whether or not it's Wendy Rogers or Major Marjorie Taylor Greene or whether or not it's Tucker. I mean, th this this war and the world being able to see what the foreign policy decisions of Donald Trump and the continuing propping up of somebody like Vladimir Putin, what it means. People are literally able to tangibly see what it means right now. And that's a problem for them. And, you know, it makes no sense. And then you have um, someone like um I believe it was Tom Cotton recently on TV who was unable and unwilling to call out people on his side of the aisle who continuously praise Putin. I mean, it's mind boggling. I, I don't I, you know, for me, I have absolutely no love for Vladimir Putin. I think that he's a war criminal, especially after killing civilians, bombing hospitals, bombing ambulances, killing killing civilians for me you know, is is a part of the definition of a war crime. And so the fact that Donald Trump, Pompeo, Tucker, et cetera, stand by him. I mean, it's fundamentally a problem, but now the world can see. You know, I wonder, as a lawyer, and I was thinking about this the other day, you know how in the United States we're so big with class actions? And remember, there was that massive class action lawsuit against Iran, um, you know, for some of the um, crimes that they had committed, and then they seized a ton of Iranian money for that lawsuit. I almost wonder whether or not we have the capability of bringing a lawsuit against Vladimir Putin for war crimes and for other crimes that he's committed. Crimes against our economy, right? Where any one of us could be the lead plaintiff, right, in it, and then start seizing some of the assets that belong to him that we know are his, right, that are interrelated to him. I mean, I think that's the... Though... Sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure that like Trump, he's solely guided by money. So I wonder if something like that would be, you know, a, uh, a way of controlling him, a deterrence to some respect. 
So I don't know about a class action. I, I don't think that I think that you'll, you'll have some sovereignty issues and overcoming those sovereignty issues. However, I do think that there is a role that that some of our international courts can play. And by the way, they're already seizing his assets. You saw he just took his boat from, I believe it was Germany, back to, to Russia. He's worth $200 billion, depending on who you talk to. I mean, that to be just a president and an elected official um, and be worth $200 billion, I mean, that... Bakari, you know he's not worth $200 billion. He's probably worth $2 trillion. I mean, the man, the man has control over 25%. He has a 25% interest in every single company that's there in Russia. Nothing gets done in all of Russia unless he gives it the okay. So, you know, 200 billion is probably all he's showing. But I do think I do think the international courts have the ability to rain down on him, especially in some of the act, heinous acts we've seen them do. And if he uses nuclear weapons, which is still on the table, I mean, I don't I don't see him lasting long. I mean, you know, there there is this hesitancy, and rightfully so, of the U.S. to get involved in Poland or the U.S. to get involved or NATO, for that matter, in airspace because it would bring you in direct conflict with with Russia. So I don't see that happening. However, you know, once this war subsides, I think that he's going to be a pariah that won't be able to circulate the world anymore. There's no more European vacations for him. The only place he'll he'll be able to go is you know, to St. Petersburg. I mean, that, that's about it for him. So when you look at it like that, he will be isolated. He will have nothing. Um, and he, you know, he just will die a lonely man in Russia. That's the way I see this game ending. Do you really think that he's not going to get his boat back or his money back from the United States? Now, it may take some time, just like you'll remember under Barack Obama that they they brought to Iran. I don't even know how many, you know, plane loads worth of cash that was seized of their money years ago. Yeah, I was driving my book. It was, it was their money. So yeah, I mean, the question is, can he get his money back? He probably can, uh, but it, it yeah. won't be during his lifetime. You know, I mean, it just won't. Well, from your mouth to God's ears, as they say, but I'm also, I'm curious if I'm curious if you've thought about the larger attraction between the far right and Putin, like, you know, listening to people like Steve Bannon, you know, they view him as anti-woke, right? White Christians, as a white Christian savior who's willing to stand up against the liberal internationalist order. If you would, discuss with me where and why these folks continue to make this larger connection. I mean, all of a sudden, he's like this pro-white, this pro Christian, this pro-conservative guy that they're making into a poster child. Yeah, I don't get it. I mean, it, you, you're right. I mean, it's this love for the white alpha male authoritarian. I mean, and seriously, I mean, what 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 are you embracing? You're embracing someone who poisons political opponents, somebody who kills journalists, somebody who kills civilians right now in, in war. I mean, this is who you're talking about. And and the embracing by the right of Vladimir Putin. I mean, you see the rallies and the images of people chanting Putin's name. I mean, outside of Lindsey Graham, you're hard pressed to find a vocal critic per se. I mean, everyone else is is being cautious with their terms. And so, you know, I, I think and you're right. I mean, you have to include the issue of race, Michael, because you have a lot of, you know, black male authoritarians um, who are just ruining their countries as well throughout the diaspora, but you don't see the right embracing them the way they're embracing Vladimir Putin. And so it's it's fascinating to see. I mean, and when you look at someone like Mike Pompeo, who I, I just don't, I, you know, it's it's 
when you get around Donald Trump, you lose yourself. And I can't understand that to save my life. You know, you would think that Mike Pompeo, West Point graduate, who um, has a great deal of intellect, would understand who Vladimir Putin was. But he made a political calculation to pacify the 45th president. But let's just take a look, for example, at Steve Bannon. Somewhere along the line, this... I don't. I, I have to just use it, and everybody's saying to me, try to s- slow down on you know how you really feel. He's this fucking jerk off who has somehow managed to make money, has managed to somehow, despite being thrown out by Trump and brought back in by Trump, the whole he's managed to create a following for himself of people just like himself, a bunch of racist anti-Semites that end up going on, you know, whether it's podcasts, on radio, on television. Now, of course, it's, he's not going on your network television. He's going on the Newsmax, the OAN, but that's his people. And praising Vladimir Putin for racist views. I mean, and this is, again, what Donald Trump is embracing in his inner circle now. Does he really think that he's going to be able to win the next election with this sort of ideology? Yes, he does believe that because, you know, he's also insane. But I I think (laughs) that what you highlighted is so important. The next... The nexus between the anti-Semitism we see and and the racism we see, and we see it play out in the world. This isn't just some Southern Alabama, you know, Mississippi Confederate flag waving hick problem. No, these these are um, individuals like Steve Bannon. These are individuals who walk the halls of Congress. I mean, and to watch the racism play out, to watch the anti-Semitism play out on a worldwide scale is frightening. But that's the they use that as political currency, Michael. You know that. I mean, Donald Trump utilizes that to to mobilize and empower his base. And they see a leader and a hero in Vladimir Putin. Yeah, they do. You know, one of the things that I've been trying to use my new Instagram account, Michael Cohen 2.0, is I want to create a grassroots movement. I see the increase in racism. I see the increase in anti-Semitism, which I think they said is like up 1,400%, right, right uh, over the four years of, Don- of Donald Trump's presidency. And I want to create grassroots movements so that we can actually play a more active role in what's going to be needed in the midterm elections, and I hope that you'll join me, you know, in this crusade, because I don't think that there has ever been a time more, more needed for grassroots movements than right now, especially in light of what the Republican, what the GOP is doing with the electoral colleges, with the ability to have one individual make a determination on whose vote counts and whose vote does not. Because again, we're going to go to Putin, one of Trump's favorite lines. It doesn't matter who you vote for. All that matters is who's counting the vote. I mean, and you, you know, we have to go back and let's go back through history. I mean, you, you saw some failures when it came to Vladimir Putin and you saw the world not respond in Georgia. You saw the world not respond in Crimea. Um, or Crimea, however you want to pronounce it. Um, and then you went through a phase where finally, you know, Mitt Romney was right. I think that has to be said. Um, when Barack Obama kind of flippantly said the 1980s want their foreign policy back, uh, Mitt Romney saw something, or whoever advised Mitt Romney saw the rise of, 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 um, 
of Vladimir Putin. And I want to say that Barack wasn't wrong in asserting that China was going to be one of the larger threats to the U.S., but he was wrong in minimizing the role that that Russia would play. And I think that's an admission that people have to be willing to make. And, and Romney on that foreign policy point was correct. But Barack Obama got it and his swift action after Crimea, um, you know, freezing, freezing out Russia is something that should have gone forward, would have gone forward under Hillary Clinton. But you look at the policy choices that Donald Trump made. It wasn't just a hands off for Russia. It was a love fest. It was a, I'm trying to get Vladimir Putin in bed and thank him, you know, for everything he's done for me. And so and even after after meddling in our election, we didn't I mean, we didn't really slap them like we should have. And so all of that, this is not happening in a vacuum. All of the foreign policy failures we've had over 20 years lead up to what's going on today. Well, let's just go back to this whole topic of racism. And you can see it now playing out. Because um, I want to pivot into this now and discuss the nomination of Katanji Brown Jackson uh, to the Supreme Court. Now, obviously, beyond the obvious historic nature of her nomination, you know, what else does her appointment fulfill? And if you notice, there's a whole group of people that all of a sudden now have decided to come out and to criticize Joe Biden on the nomination of Miss Brown Jackson simply because she's black and she's a woman. No, it's been interesting to see. So there there are a few ways that I'll respond to that. First, in the 223-year history of this country, um, we've had 115 Supreme Court justices. All but seven have been white men. Um, You know, Ronald Reagan came out and said that he was going to appoint a woman in the 1980s because he was having issues with women um, in his polling. And, of course, who did Ronald Reagan appoint? Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, Donald Trump came out with a list of people that he was going to um, nominate. It wasn't the most diverse list, but he, he had every right and prerogative and he nominated uh, Gorsuch and, and um, he nominated Amy Coney Barrett. Um, and so, you know, these things and Kavanaugh, he actually got three appointments, weirdly enough. Um, and so, you know, this isn't anything new, but Kentanji is someone who comes from, and you understand this, unfortunately, having gone through the system, the power of and the importance of having someone who knows it and was a public defender, for example. Kentanji Brown Jackson brings that. She talked about sentencing reform. She was on the commission for sentencing reform. And so she just brings a background. And, and it's weird because, you know, she just got she just got um, voted into the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. I want to say it was last in last February, March, and she got Murkowski, Collins, and Graham to vote for in a bipartisan fashion. So I anticipate her being able to at least get a few Republican votes. But yeah, I mean, it's real. And I think that it's beyond time. And even Lindsey Graham has said it, that it's beyond time to have a black woman, you know, on the Supreme Court. And Kentanji Brown Jackson is more than qualified to do that. See, that's what I was going to say. Forget about the fact. I mean, if in fact that you are, we're going to call you racist, you know, and or you're, you know, you're sexist or whatever the reason may be that you have an issue with, um, you know, Katanji Brown Jackson being nominated or, um, you know, you know, becoming appointed to the Supreme Court. Look at who she is as a yep. person. I mean, you're talking about her education, yep. Harvard, yep. right? You know, not just Harvard 
as a college, but Harvard Law yep. School, right? Um, I mean, you know, she's got mom, she's got two children, her husband's a surgeon. I have somewhere along the line, I remember reading somewhere that she's even somehow uh, her husband that's through marriage related to Paul Ryan, the former speaker. Michael, we joke about it all the time, but like it's like her husband's uh, her husband's brothers, her husband's sisters husband's brothers twice removed but black folk we just call that cousin so it's just her cousin (laughs) (laughs) is that they're just cousins i i hear you but look at her look at her qualifications look at what she's done she is more than qualified and if it's if you have a problem with the fact that she's a woman okay that's on you you have a problem because she's black Okay, that's on you. Look at her as an individual, as a as a lawyer, as a Supreme Court, you know, appointee. Look at what she's capable and has shown that she's capable of being and doing. And I think she would be a great balance to what I think is becoming a very unbalanced Supreme I, Court. I mean, you 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 actually took the words. You may not. This is, I mean, this is where you have to get to with court. Like you you may not like her rulings. Right. Just fine. You can disagree on some of the rulings. I mean, everybody, you know that you get down to the holding of something and you disagree with it or you may disagree with something they utilized in their analysis. But you can't disagree with her qualifications to be on the court. Right. And, you know, I think that there was once a time when individuals you remember when justices would get elected 98 nothing and 96 to two. And people didn't come from the same background where they believe necessarily in their rulings. But the standard was. Were you eminently qualified to be on the court? And the answer, if it was yes, you know, got the vote. And she fits in that same category. She's she's, you know, just as qualified, if not more qualified than the last few appointments we've had from Kavanaugh to to Amy Coney Barrett to to uh, Gorsuch. I mean, and and Ketanji Brown Jackson is she meets that, if not exceeds it. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. But then just moving on for a sec, Bakari, the GOP is already, because I started reading this and it really upset me, right? The GOP is already trying to paint Miss Brown Jackson as a far left radical and all kinds of nonsensical things. Do you believe that she faces a bruising fight at the G, you know, as the GOP looks to pay back the Democrats for Brett Kavanaugh, who I think is a just disgrace, not just as a Supreme Court, you know, judge, but as a human being? Or will the more vocal antagonists of Miss Brown Jackson just look like a bunch of bigoted assholes who want to obstruct for the sake of obstruction? Like, Lindsey Graham, if you're listening to the show, and I hope you are, I'm talking about I think, you. I think that, um, you know, there, there are, there are a, a few points. I think the Republican Party, the overarching majority of them, are just going to leave this fight alone. But you're going to have the the Tom Cottons of the world who think for some reason they can be president of the United States. Somebody needs to tell them that Tom somebody needs to have a sit down with Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz and say the the closest you'll get to the White House is the Easter egg roll. Like you're not going to be president of the United States. But both of them are going to make a fool of themselves. But for the most part, I think they may not vote for Kentonji Brown Jackson, but this won't be a knockdown drag out because at the end of the day, it won't change the makeup of the court. It'd still be a six three court. So there'll be a couple of people who make a fool of themselves, but she's going to look, she's going to be so impressive in these hearings that there's not much you can do other than just go out there and cast a no ballot. You won't be able to sully the process. 
You really don't think so? Because, you know, I was reading this article in the Washington Post by uh, Sophia um, A. Nelson. And the article, you know, just a headline of it alone should be enough. Republicans' criticism of Ketanji Brown-Jackson is part of the reason black women like me left the party. And it's, and it's true, right? You know, are, are they going to go ahead and no longer, you know, um, back you know, the the Republican Party, will you start to see the smaller, you know, grouping of um, black women or black men who are part of the Republican Party? Um, will you see them now completely walk away simply because the only reason that these Republicans are not voting for her nomination, and she should it should be unanimous when it comes to her qualifications, and it will not be, right? How is it possible that somebody who is part of that same group, right, what, you know, whether you're black, brown, any minority, how could you turn around and remain part of an organization, the Republican Party, when they are so fundamentally against you, not because of your qualifications, but because of the color of your skin. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point. But I mean, like, look, are the four black women who are still members of the Republican Party going to leave because of this? I don't know if those four are going to leave. But until Republicans begin to get out of their own way. Um, when it comes to issues of anti-Semitism, racism, xenophobia, et cetera, they're going to fundamentally have problems, you know, bringing people into the fold in this new, more diverse and browner America. Your point is well taken. It's so true. But it's only about four black women left over there anyway. And I don't think they're going to leave because of time. Well, they probably should. They should make a stand because, you know, they're qualified. You turn around, you take person, you know, people like, you know, Utah Congresswoman uh, Mia Love as an example, or you even go back, you know, to Condoleezza Rice. You know, they should be the ones standing up and making the biggest stink. They were certainly qualified for their jobs as I believe that um, that she is, you know, that Miss Brown Jackson is as well. Um, you know, I, I really truly believe that. But then, just moving on, President Biden's struggle in the polls are being framed as a larger battle between moderates who want Biden to come back to the center and progressives who aim to hold Biden to his word and the promises that he made on the campaign trail, right? As he approaches his first State of the Union address, how would you grade the president's first year in office? You know, I said it before, it's probably a B minus um, right now. Um, this speech is going to be one of the more important speeches that one of the more important State of the Unions that's ever been given. I'm interested to see how long it is. Um, there's a lot of ground to cover. I think he needs to tout his accomplishments, a bipartisan infrastructure bill, COVID relief, getting shots in arms, money on the street. But how he talks about, you know, the failure in Afghanistan um, and not being able to see the, the, the falling of that country so quickly. Um, or how he talks about many of the successes that we've had thus far in dealing with Vladimir Putin are going to be very, very interesting. Part of the president's issue is that they, and this is an Obama issue too, it's weird that both of them have this kind of obstacle they can't overcome, is that they just don't message well about their accomplishments. They don't tell people about the things that they've done. And then it comes off when they do, is not necessarily listening to the voices of those individuals. So he's going to have to walk that line. I don't care about his polling numbers right now. I mean, 
his polling numbers are, are just as bad as Barack Obama's were. And Barack Obama went on to trounce Mitt Romney and, and win a second term. So uh, that's not that's not a problem right now. But if they're going to do anything, Michael, about the midterms, then that starts with this speech tonight. Yeah. So I agree with you on that, except if we can do something just, you know, since, of course, we're talking about a scorecard. Let's take a look at covid. Right. As an example, because that's been the biggest issue on, you know, on people's minds over the course of the past, you know, two, two and a half years. How do you think, what grade would you give him on, let's talk about the COVID relief package, let's combine that with getting vaccinations into people's arms, um, you know, the mask mandates and so on. What would you give him as a grade on that? No, I think, I think it's an A. I mean, I think that the only thing that this administration has to do a better job of is understand parental exhaustion. There is this, and it's a very real thing. Um, Hillary Rosen talks about it a lot, but I think that we've missed the mark when it comes to understanding that we have to do everything we can to, to get back to normal when it comes to getting children back in schools. But outside of that, the shots in arms, the vaccinations, um, the messaging has been a little muffled. That's why it's not an A+, plus, um, particularly coming out of the CDC. You don't know what they're talking about half the time. But <laughs> all in all, I mean, all in, all in all, we're, we're, we're getting there. I mean, it's like, Michael, the most amazing thing is, you know, we've Made it through the pandemic. Do you know what your reward is? World War Three. So that's how the world is. I mean, we just we're just here trying to make it one day at a time. Okay, so let me continue for another quick second. Let's talk about Afghanistan. The United States was in this war for over two decades. He managed to evacuate, what was it, 125,000 people? And yes, a dozen people got killed, right, from a suicide bomber. Would you not turn around and say that the two most difficult parts of um, of war is entering and exiting, especially when you're talking well, about Afghanistan? Was, definitely was exiting. Definitely was exiting because we hadn't. He finally did something that no president had done, and that was pull the plug on. We're no longer in war in Afghanistan. I mean that that is a huge plus. And I so, think- so my point is, what grade, what letter grade would you give him on that? Um. Probably a B minus because of the fact that he had the courage to leave. Uh, However, you can't escape the fact that the withdrawal was um, sloppily done. And I think that there are ways in which and trust me, I'm not a military expert um, by any stretch. But I do think that when you talk about um, uh, the way in which the withdrawal was done, the quickness in which um cities fail um i think there are military individuals military generals people who were advising joe biden that this would happen sooner rather than later and they miscalculated i think there was a fundamental miscalculation about how quickly the taliban would take over and um that failure uh caused the images that we see that failure caused the chaos at that at the at the airport that failure okay miscalculation but hold but bakari hold on i get it i get it First of all, I think you were very generous with him on COVID. I wouldn't have given him an A. I would have given him an A minus. But when it comes to Afghanistan, a dozen people. I don't care about the pictures of people trying to get out and wanting to jump on airplanes and so on. You think there's not going to be chaos getting in or getting out of war? So the answer is at the end of the day. But uh, but, Bakari, at the end of the day, right, 125,000 people got out. 
and so on. I would give him certainly, I would give him no less than a B on something like this. I mean, I gave him a B minus. Okay, a B. But, you know, if you come talk to me after the exam and you need a you need an extra, you know, half a grade to get your GPA up, I can move you from a B minus to a B. <laughs> but the fact is, there, there, and he will admit, there was a fundamental miscalculation on how quickly the Taliban would, would take over and do the things they did. Um, and I think that that miscalculation was a was an error, and and anyone clear eyed will tell you that. And so, you know, I, a B minus a B. I think that all in all, it was it was more than passing, and we got out of Afghanistan, which we should have a long time ago. I totally agree with you on that. And then let me just jump in because I have a bigger point here that I'm trying to make. Ukraine, what's going on right now? How would you give him, you know, in terms of a letter grade for how he's handling? The Ukraine, you know, conflict right now, the war. An A. Yeah, I, I think would the too. strength that they're an A plus. I mean, it, it just it's just the the way that he's been able to, you know, just the announcements, even a lot of the sanctions that they're putting forth, we're putting forth globally unified. He allows the, the NATO um, G7 to make these announcements and proclamations and then the United States kind of backs them up, you know, watching them lead that strength. Um, you know, it's just been it's been resisting the urge to um, have our soldiers boots on the ground, but still being able to, you know, fight a war has been um, pitch perfect strategy. I mean, Joe Biden, it's it, you, this is where 40 years of experience comes in handy. And I think that he's been doing a damn good job in protecting our interest, also helping Ukraine out as much as we possibly can. Yeah, and being well-respected in the international community is how we were able to get things like SWIFT taken away from uh, Russia and basically major banks, right? yeah, with the international banks. But the reason that I bring this all up in terms of that is obviously, you know, some of the things like ABC put it best when they said, you know, from fighting the pandemic and rebuilding the economy to dealing with racial strife and combating climate change, right? So Biden is facing this mixed report card. On what he's been able to accomplish, and this is the point I want to make, he was so interested in, you know, rebuilding our economy, the infrastructure, the infrastructure bill that he was trying to pass would have been something exactly what this country needs in order, right, to rebuild, in order to get higher paying jobs for, you know, for most Americans and so on. But who was it again that stopped the infrastructure bill dead in its tracks, right? Mitch McConnell, the GOP, fighting him tooth and nail, not wanting him to have any success in anything that he does, thereby in 2024, they can now use that against him to retake the White House. So in essence, they want to basically get on the airplane and blow it up so in that way in 2024 that they could end up you know, having a new airplane. It just doesn't make sense to me. Well, we passed an infrastructure bill. I mean, a bipartisan infrastructure bill. And I think that those successes are successes that you have to talk about more. But you, your point in highlighting the obstruction that's there. And, you know, I think that with all the conversation we give Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell is probably the largest impediment to progress we have in this country. Um, you know, I, it's it's an interesting match of wits to see Nancy Pelosi versus Mitch McConnell. I believe that's that era is probably coming to an end. Um, but Joe Biden's having to overcome all of these things. And it's crisis after crisis after crisis. 
Um, and the ancillary folk don't matter as much. The Tom Cottons of the world, the Ted Cruz's don't matter as much because they're just, they're just pains in the ass. But, you know, uh, Mitch McConnell, for example, and, and, you know, the infrastructure, and it's funny because you have all these Republicans, you've seen it, Mike, all these Republicans who, who voted against the infrastructure bill. What's the first thing they do? They go out in their district and they have press conferences about the new bridge that just got built <laughs> or the new road that's wide. It's the most intellectually dishonest thing ever. But the president's going to have to keep doing those things. And many, you know, you may bring up Mitch. I think my biggest disappointment has been in Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema stopping progress as well. Yeah, well, I agree with you on both of that. When I was saying about the infrastructure bill, it, when, what I was really meaning is the amount of funding that the infrastructure bill was supposed to contain and into the various yeah. different aspects of infrastructure, right? That's the part I was referring to. What we ended up, you know, what bipartisan got accomplished was a tremendously watered down bill that while it will do good, it won't do the same extent of good right. that I believe that the original bill uh, would have done. But yeah, it is Mansion and Cinema that I just truly don't understand. Um, I don't understand him with West Virginia. I don't understand the lock hold that he seems to have on West Virginia and so on. But you know, Bakari, moving forward, in the larger blame game of moderates versus progressives, What's your response to those who seek to blame the progressive left for President Trump, uh, for President Biden's woes, arguing that he was elected to govern from the middle? No, I mean, I, I just think that you have people who are holding him accountable for the promises he made. And nothing's wrong with that. I mean, there is this tug. I mean, for example, you're going to have people give speeches after the State of the Union, which is probably the dumbest thing on earth, giving a response and Democrats giving a Democratic response to the Democratic president is a waste of time and energy. You're going to have those things. You have them every all the time. You have Bernie Sanders and other folk talking about how um, Bill Press wrote an entire book about how um, Barack Obama failed. I mean, this this happens. Um, however, I will say that if if Joe Biden continues to fulfill his promises like he did with Kentonji Brown Jackson, but he has to do it with criminal justice reform, um, he has to do it with voting rights. Um, you know, we we have to have these larger conversations about policy. He'll be just fine. Yeah. Look, I could talk about criminal justice reform all day long. I would like to see Biden's Department of Justice actually do something, hold the former president and his bunch of toadies, you know, responsible for their crimes, for their dirty deeds. Instead, like I just recently, after my unconstitutional remand of me in the lawsuit that I brought, my lawyer um you know, I have two lawyers on that case um, um, went ahead and sent a letter to Biden's office and they got the same response that they got from the Bureau of Prisons, a non-acknowledgement acknowledgement. It's just a bullshit letter, you know, that turns around and says, hey, yeah, we got it. You know, we didn't really think about what the answer was going to be, but here's a standard form letter to make you happy. I mean, it's really wrong. And, you know, this is something that I do hold Biden responsible for Michael Carvajal, the former head of the Bureau of Prisons, who was put there under Trump, failed and failed miserably. He failed. He didn't do what he was required to do, even under the First Step Act. And so he then decides he's going to resign. But out of the graciousness of his of his, you know, good heartedness and the hope to see reform in the Bureau of Prisons, he's going to stay on 
until such time as they find a replacement. So now I start to scratch my fucking head and I say, wait, 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 wait. This guy is staying on until they find a replacement? Are you trying to tell me that somebody who failed for three and a half years, who did absolutely nothing to advance the First Step Act, um, you can't find a replacement for him? And he's still there? I mean, that's not, not, don't stop with him, though. I mean, Louis DeJoy. Same thing, right? But the, the, I mean, uh, a post office is doing, I mean, our postal carriers are doing everything they can do. Their leadership is you terrible. Know, so, Bakari, you know, like I always tell you, it's an hour show. We have just a couple more questions for you. And so let's just try to move through those as quickly as we can. Right? Sure. We'll be here talking all we day. Sh- we sure yeah. could. Do you think the poll numbers even mean anything anymore in our hyper-partisan landscape? Because perhaps a 37% approval rating is the best that anyone could possibly hope for these days. What's your, what's your opinion on that? Going, a guy who actually went through the polling system you know, himself. Polls don't matter at this point. Uh, now, if, this, if he's 37% in October, Democrats are toast in 2022. And if he's 37%... In, in November of 2024, then that's a problem. But these polls don't mean anything today. And at the end of the day, you know, it's state by state. So I, I it's going to matter in places like Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona, Nevada, where the Senate is up for play. Um, and we'll see. I, I think the Democrats should stay as close. If I was running for statewide office, I'd make sure I was as close to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as possible. So, you know, it's funny when it comes to these polls, you may remember, you know, years ago when I was sitting on CNN with um, Brianna Keeler and we had the whole debate and it became a, a meme that went viral about me saying says who when it came to the polls. Oh, yeah. All right. So let me tell you what that was really all about. The, I had seen the poll, knowing the question that she was going to be definitely raising. And here's the problem with the polls. The problem with polls is that it's still done in an old-fashioned way. It's done where... I've never been polled. I get people polled the house all the time, and we don't answer, right? Uh, And so... But you have a landline, too, don't you? I do. See, I I don't have a landline. And so if you don't have a landline... Many polling, many of the polls are antiquated, and they now they start to call cell phones a little bit more. But a lot of times, polling companies only call. But here's the point I'm trying to make: so that poll was a thousand people, which is considered a large poll, and it's very expensive. But what's a thousand people? I jump on my Instagram live; I have a thousand people. It's nothing today, right? So, the people that you're calling. You already know the answer that they're going to give. I've been a Democrat my entire life. I have never voted for anyone other than a Democrat. What do you think that the results of the poll is going to be? And that's why when they say 37% for Joe Biden, I'm not buying it at all. I think it's says who? exactly <laughs> very good. There's going to be our new meme. You know. So then just um, moving along here. Do you worry about the Democrats losing control of the House and the Senate in the midterm elections? I mean, do you think Trump is still a factor or will the economy and other sort of kitchen sink issues be what's on voters' minds? Like, my question really to you is, what can Democrats do to keep or even to expand their majority in the House and the Senate? 
Well, they, uh, expanding it should not be the focus. Keeping it is the focus. I, I am more concerned about the Senate than the House. I think the House, because one of, one of the things people have to remember is that uh, redistricting is occurring as well. And the overwhelming majority of state legislators are held by uh, legislatures are held by Republicans. And so you see Republicans increasing their margins in state after state. And so it's going to be really hard in the House. But in the Senate, again, you got to talk about Georgia and where Donald Trump plays a role is not necessarily in the outcome but in who these nominees are. Democrats couldn't pick a better nominee in Georgia than uh, Herschel Walker. Um, you think Ron Johnson is vulnerable. You look at, at Pennsylvania, that's a state that Democrats should win. Nevada and um, Arizona, those are states that Democrats should hold. And so if you're able to do those things, then yes, you'll, you will. Um, and you know the people who've opted out of running for the Senate, Larry Hogan, for example, or Governor Sununu, those things are very valuable. Um, for Democrats to hold in the House. I mean, I think you're probably going to have a Speaker McCarthy if I was, if I had to bet. Yeah. Well, let me ask you one last question, right? As again, we're winding down the hour. What's Bakari Sellers up to these days, right? I mean, I see you constantly on television. I know that you put out, you know, um, uh, a book um, and, and so on. Just look, you and I, I call you my friend, right? Um, we speak, you know, from time to time about basically really nothing, family, life, and so on. Haven't spoken to you in a couple of months, things that really do matter. So I'm kind of curious, what's my friend Bakari Sellers up to these days? And what are you going to do in order to help to keep the house, by the way? Oh, I'm busy as all hell. I'm practicing law. I am doing a lot of civil rights work. I'm traveling, speaking around the country, have a great book out. But I'm going to tell you, man, and you, you'll you appreciate this. I'm really focused on being a good father and a good dad. I mean, those are my two top priorities. And um, just, you know, I, I think you and I have those goals in common um, and waiting on Jim Clyburn to retire. So I can literally go help out in the fight and and maybe get an apartment or a house in, in D.C. and and run for office uh, for the great state of South Carolina in the 6th Congressional District. So we'll see when well, that you is. You know, I'll be there backing you. So let me say to my friend Bakari, it's good to see you. Thank you for joining me today during this really tumultuous time in our country. And, you know, I'm always here for you. So feel free. You call me anytime and stay in touch, my friend. And prayers for all of our friends in the Ukraine. Prayers for everyone in the Ukraine. And, and, and God, God, please grant us peace in this world one day and soon. amen to that one i will see you soon my friend and now for today's mea culpa in speaking to bakari sellers i'm reminded that the doom i feel for our political future is perhaps just a temporary sensation for every fucking lauren bobert there is a bakari sellers willing to sacrifice himself or herself and his personal ego for a larger political ideal Sellers is part of a political continuum and movement that was born 60 years ago and is connected to the larger civil rights movement. For Sellers and others who have dedicated their lives to this cause, today's political reality is both frustrating and frightening. The frustration stems from having to remind President Biden who put him in office and that his inability to push through progressive wins and define a larger democratic agenda will likely hamper him and the party come the midterm elections. And that's where things turn frightening, folks. 
Should the Democrats lose the majority, people like Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene will become exponentially more powerful within the GOP. And what was once thought impossible will become a political reality with racist, anti-Semitic ideologues controlling the levers of power with Donald Trump controlling the larger agenda. What's at stake is enormous. Seller knows this and at times seems pained to keep his fellow Democrats on message, reminding them to frankly not fuck this up for the rest of us. The world is a fragile and frightening place. The fact that the actions of two unstable lunatics in Putin and Trump can have such tragic effects on the rest of the world is terrifying. But it doesn't end there. Trump gave birth to a new generation of political leaders for whom nothing is out of bounds or off limits. They exist to the far right of the party and they court hate groups and extremists. If sellers at times feel outnumbered, it's no wonder. But it's hard to rally your own base to fight this rising tide if your own leaders won't fight for you. And one Supreme Court nominee ain't gonna make up for that fact. Let's hope that Biden, the Democrats, understand that fact as well. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa. Nothing but the truth.